Hear the word of God from a selection of passages from 1 Samuel, chapters 16 through 18. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be, to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's, Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and brought him in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this epaph of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine, champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from the taxes in Israel. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Saul replied, 
You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from his youth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Waypoint. It's so good to be with you all. Uh, This morning we are covering 15 chapters of Samuel. And so I I hope that you're okay with this abridged version of that. Uh, You'll you'll probably find that there's uh, more that I won't talk about than I actually have time to talk about. I actually thought at one point, what if we just just read all 15 chapters? Uh, That would be fun. Um, I'm not sure why I decided that this would be better, but uh, it probably won't be, but uh, just a plug, go, go read First Samuel, right? Uh, so the past few weeks we've been in a series looking at the book of Samuel. And all this talk about kings and monarchies, it, it hasn't turned me into a royalist yet, as, as the British might say. But it has made the passing of Queen Elizabeth all the more intriguing to me. I mean, just to talk about legacy and what she represented, not just as an individual, but for a people, to see how a people who, who even disagree about the importance and place of the monarchy have responded to her passing. I mean, it's, it's almost surprising that at this point to see something actually bring people together than to stir more outrage. There's a show that started about six years ago called The Crown that actually chronicles the, the life of Queen Elizabeth II from the 1940s to modern day. And there's an episode in the first season where Elizabeth goes on a tour of the Commonwealth. And it's while she's in Kenya that the news reaches her that her father, King George, has passed. And as the scene unfolds, you see her in her room. She's, she's mourning. She's crying. She's kind of off to herself. When her assistant secretary comes in and he calls her into to a private meeting to discuss the situation... And as he begins to speak to her, he, he almost seems apologetic to even be having the conversation, or, or, or maybe at least the timing of it. Maybe, maybe it's right now. Like, why, why are we talking about this? Why are we doing this? 
I mean, you could call it a formality, but it's necessary. He begins to explain to her that she must choose her regal name. Now, to this 26-year-old, her father is gone. She's trying to process that. But to the United Kingdom, their king is gone. She's puzzled by the question, what's wrong with my name? Nothing's wrong with your name. Her husband's trying to comfort her. Your, your name's fine. Why, why are we even talking about this? What, what, are, what are we doing here? And yet she's unflappable, decisive. Elizabeth will be her name. Let's not overcomplicate things here. And as she gets up to walk out of the room, her secretary rises and says, then long live Queen Elizabeth. To which she pauses. And you begin to feel the gravity of this ordinary moment. It just it sinks in. It's, it's not a coronation. But she's no longer the heir apparent. She's the queen. Now, of course, this is a, it's a dramatization. But in this case, it's depicting something that's real. A person who has occupied an institution that has been a constant in the lives of those who have walked this earth for the past seven decades. I mean, you just don't see that kind of longevity every day. The second longest reign in modern history. Now, whether you feel akin to a kingdom or not, I don't think the biblical text affords us freedom from the impulse to give someone or something governance and preeminence in our lives. I think it's embedded in human nature to care about legacy, to care about purpose, to be proximate to to something that will outlast you, that's bigger than you. I mean, that's why we care about records and tenure and sustainability and position. We push ourselves through hard things because the reward of the destination is worth the cost of the journey. Sure, we want agency. We want to dictate our terms. But we see that even present in the heart of Israel, even in their request for a king. We see both impulses, both to dictate terms and to surrender allegiance. It's important that we recognize both impulses in ourselves. They seem at odds, dictating terms, giving allegiance. But they're both there. They're both in us. Now, what 1 Samuel set out to do is to tell us how the Israelite monarchy was established. And from chapter 16 on, 1 Samuel gives us a portrait of two anointed leaders, one rising and one falling. And it evokes questions for us like, what does God define kingliness look like? How does the king of a nation shape his people? What kind of dynasty Does God, the Lord, what kind of dynasty does he intend to create? And here's the heart question. How does what I give allegiance to shape who I'm becoming? My loyalties, my commitments, my devotions. How do my allegiances shape me? You see, God, God is after our hearts. But not in the way that the world seeks to do it. Not not with world dominion, domination. That's not how God does it. I mean, have you ever noticed this? When when you look at the life of Jesus, he never 
coerces. He never manipulates. He never forces people. I mean, people can say, I hate his people. I hate his institutions. I even hate some of his teachings. But him, there's something, there's something about him. I just can't shake him. His words, they, they cut at the heart. It's like he, he sees me. And it's not just that he sees me, but it's, it's like he can actually do something about it. Like he has the power to free me. Like he has the power to change me. It's like he wants to. I've never encountered someone with such controlled authority. He wants your allegiance. And what we give our allegiances to, this will determine what kind of legacies we're really creating and what kind of future we're really living for. You see, chapter 16 is such a pivotal moment in Samuel because it marks the shift, not just in the early days of monarchy, but in our understanding of redemptive history. People are in need of rescue, and God is using kings to hint at where we should look to find it. This morning, I want us to grapple with the characteristics of the king of God's choosing and what it means for a leader like that to represent us. How allegiance to a king like that changes us. Now, what we see happening with the intermingled fall of, of Saul and the rise of David is, is it's varied and it's complex. And so my encouragement to you is go spend some time sitting in it. Go read it for yourselves. Go read it again. Go find someone that you can ask questions to, that you can talk to about the text with. Discuss it. Pray through it. Be in it. But for now, here's, here's what we're looking at this morning. First, that God's king brings comfort to his people. Second, that God's king sacrifices for the sake of others. And third, that God's king leads from a place of humility. First, God's king brings comfort to his people. God's king brings comfort to his people. In the first verse of chapter 16, the Lord says to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. You see, when Israel asked for a king, they, they asked for someone who would fight for them, someone who would represent them in place of God, and who would lead them in the land the Lord had given them. But what happens when they fail? What happens when they don't live up to that billing? What does that mean for the people? Now, for context, Saul, Saul had been rejected as Israel's king. He started out strong. We, we talked about this last week. He looked the part. He had the makings of a king. Samuel even explains to him. He, he set this, the, the kingdom up for him. He, in 1 Samuel 10.25, he talks about what the rights and the duties of the king would be. And it says he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. So Saul not only looked the part, but he, he had the instructions. He had the, he had the format. He had the, the formula for what he should do, for what the king is supposed to be. And Samuel, he's not doing anything new. He's not doing anything novel. He's just, he's just doing what the Lord told him to. You see, in Deuteronomy, it spells out this because God knew that Israel would eventually ask for a king. They didn't need a king because they had the Lord. And yet he still gave instructions on what to do when they would reject him. On what to do when they would ask for a king. In Deuteronomy 17, it says, when he takes the throne... 
of his kingdom. He is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priest. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. God is writing this to a people at a time when they did not have a king. They didn't want a king. They weren't looking for a king. But God knew them. And what we see described here, that doesn't describe Saul's rule now, does it? Even moderns like us can get this idea. What's wrong with cutting corners? What's wrong with cheating or stealing? Just, Just in small things. I mean, when yielding to God's instruction and leading God's people... Isn't close pretty good? I mean, doesn't God set a high standard? Close is good, right? It got close. Maybe the better question would be, how far are you comfortable with blurring the lines before you decide that the drift is too far? And now this might make us uncomfortable, but but let's pay attention to what God is doing here. And so again, the Lord says to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel. And this is surprising because Saul is a man that Samuel is not only frustrated with, he not only opposes him and what he's done, but he also occupies a position that, that Samuel ultimately didn't think should even exist. When, when, when Israel was asking for a king, Samuel protested. He said, God, why do this? Now, how would you feel about that person's failure? We don't need this guy. Well, Samuel mourns. Why? Don't you think Samuel would have been entitled to ask, Lord, why did you do it this way? Why did you give the people what they wanted? Samuel had an affection for the people. He's probably led them long enough to know you don't just do whatever they want. He cared about the glory of God. He grieved the suffering of his people. He was a good leader. We've already experienced the spiraling of moral decay. We saw that with the judges. Have we just perpetuated our moral downgrade? Is there any restoration for such impotent people like us? Samuel longs for a king who would be faithful to God. Someone who would love and trust God and would teach the people to do do the same. Someone who would use his power to bless the people, not not to bring destruction and war upon them. His mourning is to the point that the Lord has to pull him out of it. It's like God is saying, hey, Samuel, how long are you going to keep doing this? Don't you realize I'm not done yet? That sin that is wreaking havoc on your life. This season of deep sorrow and pain that you're in, the economic and political circumstances surrounding our country, the growing sense of outrage that seems to dominate all public discourse, the ongoing family divides. It's as if God is saying, what's wrong, my people? Don't you remember who I am? I'm not done yet. So notice what God does. Again, he says in in verse 1, he says, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending to you Jesse, 
I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And then this, this section on David's anointing ends in verse 13 when he says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. You see, what God does is he calls Samuel to enter into the next ordinary moment. He starts a small movement in the little town of Bethlehem among an unknown family featuring a son who didn't even get an invite to the dinner party. You see, we, we, look, we look all over the place for false senses of comfort. Our picture of comfort is it's typically captured in those beer commercials. Perfect weather, beautiful beach, no one around, beer in hand, relaxed, no pain, no children, no worries, no anxieties. What does life like that require? How do, how do we achieve that? Did we make some bad choices? Is it too far gone already? If I have that right job, if I make that much money, if I have this much in my bank account, if I can go on this many vacations, that's comfort. It doesn't remain, but that's comfort. At least I can sit in it for a couple of days. But God redefines comfort for us. He says, change your expectations because in this life you will have pain. You will experience sadness. It's okay to mourn in the trials and failures. The Lord doesn't say, hey Samuel, stop mourning. No, he says, hey Samuel, I think you need real comfort. Why don't you draw near to the spirit indwelled servant king? Why don't you come see what I'm doing over here? Why don't you seek comfort and rest? Not in the unmet expectations of the past or present, but in the future that I've promised you through the coming reign of the Lord's anointed. Why don't you spend some time with him? Because his comfort is real. And it's going to have staying power. Why don't you spend some time with him? The Lord's anointed, God's king brings us comfort to his people. Second, God's king sacrifices for the sake of others. He sacrifices. He sacrifices of himself for the sake of others. In the following chapter, we have the story of David and Goliath. And what is presented is a scenario where the Israelites are up against the Philistine army. Goliath is presented as the Philistine champion. An elaborate detail is given to a scaly bronze armor. I mean, you have this monster of a man, seasoned and skilled in combat, dressed from head to toe in armor. Point taken. He's physically imposing. I mean, the man looks indestructible. He's like Iron Man before Iron Man existed. And he's inviting Israel to engage in a battle of representatives. Let each army send out their best warrior. The losing army serves the winner. While the text starts in the battlefield of the Valley of Elah in verse 12, the story jumps to David, the shepherd king, the one who has been anointed in the fields of Bethlehem. He's being sent out by his father to check on his brothers in the battlefield, to which the text optimistically says in verse 19, they were all with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. That's a bit generous, right? I mean, they, they're just kind of standing there in terror, waiting for someone to step forward. They're, they're not really doing much fighting. In this situation, you have this physically imposing man taunting Israel to send out their, their champion. Now, who... Who would this be in Israel's camp? Who, who would be their champion? Who, who's the guy that they're looking at saying like, okay, who's, uh, 
Who's stepping forward here? Like, uh, any of you guys? Any guys stepping forward? Well, you'd think it would, it would be the, the one that, that the people asked for. The one who, who fights their battles. This is what the, the Lord would do. Isn't it the Lord's representative? Isn't that the one who should go forward? Earlier in chapter 16, God informed Samuel that he doesn't judge by the same standards as people do. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So what kind of leader do the people want to represent them? How about the one who looks physically imposing? Who stands head and shoulders above the rest? Well, that guy not only isn't willing to fight, he's trying to throw money at his problems. Verse 25 says, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? Talking about Goliath. He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. A king's ransom. That's the kind of leader we've come to expect. Now because the text makes a big deal out of armor, I want to take a moment to to make a big deal out of armor. Now we've already talked about Goliath's armor. And when David hears what's going on at the the battlefront, he, he decides to step in. And he does so with conviction. He, he goes and he goes before Saul. He says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul's response is essentially something like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Hey, why don't you take my armor with you? But David doesn't take it because he's inexperienced with it. It swallows him up. And in one sense, this is a rejection of Saul. You see, David doesn't go on Saul's behalf. He goes on behalf of the Lord. He doesn't intend to fight the way the world expects him to fight. He goes the way that the Lord expects him to fight. You see, Tim Keller makes this point that that David and Goliath represent two different kinds of heroism. When people look at Goliath, they see strength and power and might. The best and brightest and the most accomplished. That's the one that prevails. And then you've got small stature, big-hearted David. And we think, this is, this is your typical David and Goliath story, right? I mean, this is, this is literally where it comes from. You, you guys knew that, right? When you talk about David and Goliath, it's, it's, the, it's the underdog story. But that's not, that's not what this is about. That's not what's actually going on here. Because what David is seeing... The way that he's interpreting these circumstances, it's just, it's very different. I mean, go, go and look back at verses 34 through 37. His training was not in combat, but as a shepherd in the fields. And so when he looks at Goliath, he doesn't see an unconquerable warrior. He sees a wild beast threatening his flock that needs to be tamed. You don't need a sword and shield for that. You need the Lord's protection and a shepherd's heart. You see, people who look at the shepherd king and they ask him, where's your sword? Where's your army? Those are the same people who look at the cross and ask, why don't you save yourself? Because they're not paying attention to the real battle being fought. And so they don't realize the real, the real enemy that's being conquered. God doesn't need someone physically imposing to fight his battles because he's not fighting those kinds of battles. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29 says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify nullify the things that are so that no one may, may boast before him. You see, what we find with David is that the ordinary, unassuming places like the shepherd's field have actually been the training ground for true kingliness in God's economy. They've cultivated the heart of a king, at least the kind of king that Israel needs, and so forth, the heart of a people that they need to be shaped by. And so my people, what are the training grounds that God has, in you, God has you in right now? The places of preparation that you thought you'd be out of. How is God teaching you to trust him in those places along the way? How's he using those places to form character in you that honors him, that reflects him, that shows allegiance to him? Keller says, an ordinary king lifts himself higher and higher. The true king comes low to lift the needy up from the ash heap and to put them on thrones with the princes. Ordinary human nature says, your life for mine. I'll get into a relationship as long as it's paying off for me, as long as it's serving my interests. Your life for mine. But true kingliness is my life for yours. My life sacrifice for yours. I'm only happy when I see you thriving, even if that costs me something. Even if that costs me something. That's the heart of the shepherd king that's been cultivated in David. I mean, doesn't he have the most to lose? What if he is conquered? This is the Lord's anointed. What does that mean for his family line? What does that mean for God's kingdom? But that's not the heart of the Lord's anointed. For the Lord's anointed says, as he says in the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. God's king sacrifices at the expense of others. It's just who he is. It's who he is. Third, God's king leads from a place of humility. Here we're talking about receiving over grasping. Receiving over grasping, overtaking. What follows the David and Goliath narrative is that David continues to grow in favor from the Lord and Saul continues to grow in jealousy of David and is tormented for it. Interestingly, at the beginning of chapter 18, Jonathan transfers his robe, his tunic, his sword, and his belt to David, to which David receives it. He actually receives it. And this is important because while Saul grows in jealousy and fear of David, Jonathan, who is Saul's heir, is actually pleased to surrender his place to David. He seems content to recognize publicly what God has already anointed David for privately. That's the Lord's anointed. But as Saul grows in jealousy and fear, this this relationship between David and Saul grows increasingly sour, at at least for uh, for Saul. Saul had promised his daughter in marriage to David. And as a bride price, he sends David to the front lines of battle, hoping that the Philistines would kill him. Instead, David grows in military success. Saul tries several times to to kill David with a spear, but but David evades him. Again, a sign of the, the Lord's favor upon him. Saul embarks on several excursions to literally hunt David down, but to no avail. David is anointed. He's the anointed one. He's the king in waiting. But not once during Saul's reign 
Not once during any of this does David grasp at what has been promised to him. Multiple times David is given the opportunity to take down Saul, and David refuses. His desire to honor the kingly role is too great for him to disrespect it by usurping it. Even upon hearing of Saul's death, though Saul was a foolish king, David mourns and laments. He honors him. He honors him. There's this funny scenario in chapter 24. It's, it's hard to stay away from it. Where David and his men are, are hiding out in a cave in the desert of Engedi. And Saul has, has brought 3,000 men to look for David near the crags of the wild goats as they are near the sheep pens. Which, of course, the, the, the shepherd king, he can't, he can't escape the, the, the sheep pens. And so, so Saul goes into a cave at this point. He, they're looking for him. Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And it happens to be the cave that David and his men are, are hiding in. And so Saul, David finds him. The men find him. He's in a vulnerable position. Right? And so David's men, they're like, this is your chance. This is, this is yours for the taking. I mean, they, they, they literally advise him. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. That you can end this today. We can stop running around. We can stop hiding in caves. But even the act of cutting off Part of Saul's robe violates David's conscience and reverence for the position God had given him. Saul acted like an enemy to David, even though he was the Lord's anointed king. David was Israel's future. And now our future runs through the line of the Davidic dynasty. There has never been a day in our lifetime where the throne of David has not been occupied. And like our future king, the one who reigns this day, It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. David, though he had been anointed king, did not consider his kingship something to be grasped. Rather, he humbly submitted himself to the Lord in his timing, in his ways. In humility, his way of conquering his enemies was not by destroying them by sword, but by esteeming them in honor and championing them with his love. He did not show his might through fortuitous advantage, but by conviction and restraint. Oh, what a king we have in Jesus. And what kind of people will we become when we give our allegiance to him? What becomes of a people who begin to look like their representative ruler, who brings comfort to the weary, who lays down his life to exalt others and who treats his enemies as beloved friends. If you came into this place this morning thinking, I am an enemy of God, then I tell you, you've only just begun to understand the gospel. You're really, you're you're on your way. So why don't you just keep going? Just look at how God deals with his enemies. He lifts them up. He draws them in. And he says, why don't you shift your allegiance? Why don't you lay yourself down? Why don't you surrender to him? For he's the exalted one. He's our shepherd king. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, what, what a marvelous, what a victorious king you are. God, that you, you, Jesus, are the one who fights our battles. You, Jesus, what radiates from you is humility, is meekness. God, you endure. You endure hardships. You, you're the exalted one. God, we, we lift you up. You, you have not, you've dealt so generously with those who are once enemies, who were who once far off. You draw us to yourself, Lord. And as we, as we come to your table, Lord, this morning, we want to remember the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to remember what you have accomplished for us. And that, God, you, we, we are like your sheep, that you, you hold us near. You care for us. You tend to us like a good shepherd. And so, God, I pray that we would continue to trust you, that fully, wholeheartedly, we would give our allegiance to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At this time of our worship service, we come together for communion. Um, and the first Sunday of the month, we, we leave it as a, a time of confession. And then the third Sunday, we also do communion. And we focus more on that it's a family meal, that it's a, a remembrance of the covenant. Um, our prayer time this morning, we, did, we talked about good neighbor teams. So we're going to do the confession during this time. And uh, there... The latest podcast episode is just Lawrence and I in a dialogue about communion and Lord, or the Lord's Supper. So I challenge all of you to listen to it. It's just a 30-minute dialogue with Lawrence and myself, just talking about why we do communion the way we do it at Waypoint and, and as we've prayed about it and, like, what is God calling? How is this an important part of corporate worship, worshiping together, and your individual spiritual life? Uh, we look a little bit at the history of it, but I, I challenge all of you to listen to that and just, just hear our heart for why this meal is so important. Um, we take communion. The first Sunday of the month, I said it we, is a time of confession. So what I, what I want you to do right now is, is just as we heard about this shepherd king, the God who came, the Jesus who came to forgive us of our sins and to, to free us so that we could walk in life with him. All of us are broken. All of us have things that we're guilty of, that we're ashamed of. And, and Jesus on the cross, he dies and he rises again. And he, and in that process, he offers forgiveness of sin. He offers a way to have direct access to God. And we're going to celebrate that this morning. So what I want you to do at your seat is, is just confess your sin to God. And confess the thing, anything God lays upon your heart. Just say, God, I'm weak, you are strong, and I, and I, I give these things to you. So just take a moment to do that. Okay, now at this time, I want you to look to the screen, and we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. There's multiple versions of the Lord's Prayer that you might have learned in different churches or whatever, but please follow along with the one on the screen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory.
forever. Amen. Now I want you to just, I like this exercise. It helps me. I hope it helps you. Just exhale out. And just imagine you're exhaling all the junk, all the brokenness, all the hurt. And now take a deep breath in. And just breathe in the freedom and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. You are forgiven people. Let's walk in that forgiveness as we take this meal this morning. Paul says in Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. At this time, I'm going to ask our servers to come up. And for those of you who are new to Waypoint, we practice something here called intinction, where we actually participate in the meal by having you walk up. If you can't, for health reasons or other reasons, there is a station back in that corner and a station back in that corner that have uh, the elements in little small cups with the bread on top. There's a gluten-free option at those stations, and the up front here is is completely gluten-free. So what I'm going to do is ask that this section goes here, the middle section you'll come here, you guys will come here, and then that section will go to them. Uh, and let's just come to the Lord's table. This is for all of those who profess the name of Jesus and are believers in Jesus, and they're coming to take this meal together. So at this time, you, you can come forward. And if you want to take your cracker and walk back to your seat and take a moment to reflect, or you can eat it uh, immediately, whatever the Lord calls you to do. All right, please come forward.
Does anyone need me to come to them? Is anybody unable to come to the front? Raise your hand. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can regularly come to your table. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you the, for, for the humility of Christ, that he had all the power in the world and he came as a humble king and died on a cross and his blood frees us and there's new covenant in his blood. And we rest in that freedom. God, I pray that each person in here will know that they're loved and forgiven because of what you've done. And until we meet again to take this meal again, God, let us walk in that love and that hope and that forgiveness. God, I thank you that we have your hope and we have this meal. And I thank you that we have the people around us, these brothers and sisters who can love us and care for us. And we can all walk in this together. Until we come to your table again, God, we trust our lives to you. We trust each day to you. And we give you all the praise. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.